six years ago this past Thursday, our family moved into our, our current house. And one of the first things that we noticed as the fall kind of came on and the cooler weather came is that when we turned on the furnace, the temperature was rising out on the front porch. And that meant we didn't have very good windows. And we felt like the heat was just kind of going out. So we saved up some dollars and we, uh, a few years later, we replaced the windows that were, had been original to the house. And through that project, we were able to save a bunch of dollars because we had, uh, I was one of the installers and a couple of other relatives helped us install those windows. I mean, I wasn't going to go up to the second floor and install a window. That was my mother-in-law's job. <laughs> one of the things that we needed to do the job right was this thing right here. They even gave me a cute little bag for it. It's kind of like Bath and Body Works. Only, it's a craftsman tool. It's called a, it's called a multi-tool. And I had no idea what that thing was before I started this job. But because of the trim uh, around the windows on the interior of, of our house, I had to have this thing. And so I went out and I bought it. And I just brought it here this morning because I wanted you to know how cool I am that I have a power tool. Um, some of you probably wouldn't trust me around that. That's okay. My family doesn't either. But uh, I had this, I got this tool, and this tool is, is used for, maybe, you, maybe you're cool too, and you have one of these multi-tools, but uh, it's used for many different things. I don't even know all of the functions that this tool um, does, but I know that it can cut, because I use it for that. Um, it can be used for sanding and grinding and scraping projects as well. It's a unique little tool that has many functions. I guess that's why it's called a multi-tool. Today, we're going to give our attention to one of God's tools that also has different functions, several elements, if you will. Would you please turn in your copy of the Scriptures to the book of Romans and find chapter number 7. Romans chapter number 7. In the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 795, I believe. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of Romans to unfold the undeserved, the unmatched, and the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. We're working our way through the third division of Romans, which talks about the assurance that the gospel of Jesus provides to Christ followers, to those who are children of God. Chapter 7 addresses a potential pushback to Paul's teachings from, that the original recipients of the letter may have had or that we may have as we read through Romans chapter 7. Chapter 7 addresses, uh, and kind of asks the question, do I need to keep God's law in order to be right with God? So today, in, in 2021, do I need to keep God's law in order for me to be reconciled and to, me, to remain right in a right relationship with God. Last week we looked at the first six verses of chapter 7 where Paul explained that the law is, is for the living. If you're, if you're dead, the law doesn't apply to you. And just like death ends the law of marriage, he gives a little picture of that in verses 2 and 3 about, uh, about, about death bringing um, an end to the law. Just like death ends the law of marriage, our death ends our obligation to the law to be right with God. 
And our death comes via our union with Christ. And then he concludes that section by saying that the whole purpose was that we would bear fruit for God. We resume our discussion of God's law this morning in our text. So would you please follow along as I read from Romans chapter 7. I'm going to begin again back at verse number 1. Paul asks a question. Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over man as long as he's living. For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he lives. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she be married to another man, she's going to be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law so that she is no, not an adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also, you also have become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh, the motions or the passions of our sin, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. So he's saying when we were still in the flesh, we were the law was working our passions, arousing in our passions to bear fruit for death. Verse 6. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirits and not in the oldness of the letter, or not in the old way of the covenant. Here's our text. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion or opportunity by the commandments, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. Don't worry, we'll get to that word. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment, which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking an occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me, or killed me. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Clearly there are some words here and word order that the text make it difficult for some of the understanding, but hang tight, we're going to work through those this morning. Here, Paul addresses one of the distortions of the gospel, and he says it plainly in, in verse number 7. He asks the question, is the law sin? I mean, it's a legitimate question, right? Especially if we remember from last week that verse number 5 tells us that our sinful passions are actually aroused by the law. So, is the law sin? Spoiler alert, verse number 12, we read it. Paul says that the law, the commandment, is holy and righteous and good. We know from chapters 3, 4, and 5 that the law cannot save. That's the heart of the gospel, second division of, of, the, of the book. We know from chapter 6 that the law cannot sanctify us itself. And we know from the first part of chapter 7 that the law cannot condemn us. We're dead to the law. 
the Apostle Paul explains to us how God uses his law as a tool. And that tool, the law, has many different functions. If you're an unbeliever, you've never yet been born again, as you listen today, I want you to ask you to consider your own law keeping. Believer, this text is applicable for each of us. It's, it's a challenging passage, but don't dismiss it as, as Bible doctrine that's only necessary for a Sunday school teacher or an elder or, or professors that they need to know. Romans chapter 7 is, is everyday life Christianity because understanding the truth here is actually foundational to understanding your relationship, your current relationship with God post-salvation. Here's how. If you don't understand the function of the law, you may give yourself an excuse from obedience to God. Or you may find yourself relying on your attempts at law-keeping as earning merit with God instead of relying on Jesus. Knowledge of God's law and its function is really indispensable to our salvation and growth as Christians. God's law is not the problem. Your sinful heart is the problem. God's law is not the solution to your problem. God's Son is. So let's give consideration to how the law functions. First, Paul teaches us about the revealing elements of the law. The law reveals. When I first got my multi-tool, it revealed a lot. Chiefly, it revealed I didn't have a clue as to what I was doing. I had to read the instructions. I had to phone a friend. Having the tool revealed my initial ignorance of how the thing operated, how it actually worked. The tool revealed. The tool of God's law is also revealing. Verse 7 says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. And by the way, that's just an exclamation. If you look at the Greek text, the word God is not even in there. Some other translations say, may it never be, or, or no way. Shall we say that the law is sin? No way, God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin. I would not have known about my sin, but except for the law. For I had not known coveting. I had not known what it was to lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Precisely because we do have the law, we can identify sin accurately. The law reveals sin. The law clarifies, solidifies that we have broken God's law. If I'm going down the road at 80 miles an hour in a 75 mile per hour zone, we're in Montana for this illustration, if I'm going down the road 80 miles, it's a 75 mile per hour zone, I don't know if I'm breaking the law unless I have a speedometer. I need a tool to help me clarify and identify that I'm clearly breaking the law. That's what God's law does. It's a tool that clearly identifies and reveals my sin. Paul is discussing his, his pre-conversion experience. He's explaining that his knowledge of God's law was a tool that revealed to him that he was a sinner. He even uses a specific part of God's law, the tenth commandment, you shall not covet. Paul says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what it is to covet. In other words, the more he tried to avoid coveting, the more coveting he grew in his life. He chooses an internal sin of coveting as his example. I think he does this because he knows that we can, we can modify external behaviors 
But coveting was a matter of the heart. It takes the spirits to change the hearts. So the law's function is to reveal to us sin. The law functions to clearly identify where we have rebelled against God. This is certainly true in the conversion process, right? Someone is, is born again only after the, they understand that they are a sinner. But this is also true post-conversion for us as Christians. We become aware of our sin as we are confronted with God's law. So be confronted by God's law. Read the Word. Reading the Bible is like a, looking into a mirror. It provides an accurate picture. And usually, it's not that pretty. Some Christians are kind of just like floating through life as if reading God's Word is, is optional. Christian, read your Bible. I'll say it again. Read your Bible. It's one of the ways that God reveals to you the sin of your heart. But as we consider this function of this element of, of God's law, I want to also give you a, a, a word of, of God's mercy and hope and, and comfort. As you consider the function of God's law clearly revealing your sin, also be comforted by this reality. God doesn't reveal all of our sin to us all at one time. Aren't you thankful for that? We read God's word. We soak in God's expectations. But he doesn't reveal to us all in one shot. You're not going to wake up tomorrow morning, read your Bible, and see how you failed in, in, uh, in keeping God's law for all of your previous years, and you won't know about all the sins that you're ever going to commit. God doesn't just dump all of that onto you at once. He is merciful in that way. God's law is not the problem. Your sinful heart is the problem. And God's law is not the solution to your problem. God's son is. We see that God's law is revealing. We also see in this passage the provoking elements of the law. I finally got the multi-tool out of the box. I plugged it in and I was ready to go. It was a power tool. I mean, I was ready to go. And I discovered that it was not only a tool that revealed something about me, it also was a tool that actively provoked me. Initially, I wasn't using it correctly. It smelled hot. It left burn marks on the window jams in my house. And Tara was running up the steps thinking that the house was burning down. And I'm like, nope, just me and this stupid multi-tool. It provoked me to frustration. Listen to Paul's next description of God's law in verse number 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity or taking occasion by the commandments, wrought or brought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law, sin was dead. Now listen to a paraphrase. But sin, setting up a base of operations through the commandments, not to covet, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart, from the, for apart from the law, sin is dead or dormant. And I was alive, blissfully indifferent to the searching demands of the law. But when the commandment not to covet came, sin sprang to life. And I felt the sentence of death. The same idea that we looked at in verse number 5 last week. 
while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Well, well, how does the law provoke us to sin? How does the law arouse sin in us? Paul answers that question by explaining that sin uses the law as a foothold or a base of operation from which sin can launch its evil, its evil work. Sin uses the law as, a, as kind of a headquarters to produce wickedness in our lives. We are naturally rebellious, each of us. We come to a sign that says, don't step on the grass. And what do we want to do? We want to step on the grass. It's natural for us. We want to go step all over every blade that's underneath that sign, don't we? The law is operating as, as a base of sin. So the regulation from, from stepping on the grass isn't the problem. My naturally rebellious heart is the problem. John MacArthur said it this way, When a person is confronted by God's law, the forbidden thing becomes all the more attractive, not so much for its own sake as for its furnishing a channel for the assertion of self-will. God's law provides a means for each of us to assert our self-will and to say, I will, in God's face. God's law ends up being a channel for us to rebel. We don't have to look past the third chapter of, of the Scriptures where the first man and woman fell. God had told them, eat from all of this beautiful garden. I've set you up as rulers to have dominion over all of this. Enjoy the goodness of all that I've created for you. But there is a single, a single tree from which you are not to touch. You're not to eat of that tree. The law ended up being a channel for Adam and Eve to assert their rebellion against God. And then paradise was lost. Of course, we know it readily in our own lives as well. Sproul says we are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. We have a desire to do something, if for no other reason than because that something has been forbidden. Christian parent, if you're a parent of a young person, here is a clear teaching moment for you. Your child is just like you and ready to assert their rebellion. This is not new. It's been around since the garden. So set boundaries, of course, but not with the expectation that those boundaries will never be challenged or crossed. Law cannot change the heart of your child. It can point them to someone who can change their heart. So as your children age, have conversations with them that explain to them that the parameters, the boundaries, are only to show them that they're not able to keep God's law, but that Jesus did. They don't need the law, they need Jesus. Beloved of Harvest Bible Church, God's law is often the base of operation for sin to do its work in your life. Do you recognize that? Do you acknowledge that reality? Are you aware? Have you been reminded of your own natural propensity to say, I will? To the very things that God says, do not. God's law is not the problem. It's our sinful hearts that are the problem. Further, God's law is not the solution to our problem. 
but God's son is. God's law has a revealing element to it. God's law has a provoking element to it. God's law has a deceptive element to it. My multi-tool revealed some things about me. It provoked me to frustration. But it also had another, another element to it. It can be deceptive. It's loud. Sometimes I go out into the garage and I turn it on. And I go over to the other corner and just watch football on my phone. The family thinks I'm building something awesome. But in reality, I'm just using the tool to deceive them. I haven't done that very often. The tool of God's law can be deceptive as well. That sounds contrary, doesn't it? If we think God's law can be deceptive, at the, maybe at the, at the first hearing of that, we think, hmm, is that accurate? But listen to how Paul describes it as I read verses 9, 10, and 11. For I was alive without the law at one time, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died, and the commandment or the law which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. It killed me. For sin, seizing the opportunity, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me. And by it, it killed me. It slew me. Paul says that he was once alive apart from the law. He's still talking about pre-conversion. He was feeling smooth. He wasn't living in guilt because of his law-breaking. He was a law-keeper in his mind. Do you remember what he said to the church at Philippi? He, 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 he gives his religious resume in, in Philippians chapter 3, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the Jew, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. His perception of being alive was, was a result of not knowing exactly what the law was truly asking of him. In, in other words, Paul knew that there was a rule book, but he didn't get the intent of the law as a whole to point him to Jesus. Pre-conversion, he knew the law academically, but there was a point. There was a point when, when true understanding of his, of his personal rebellion of the law, his violation of the law, became clear to him. There came a point where he saw that he was a lawbreaker. Again in Philippians 3. But whatever gain I had, I counted a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For this sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I, that I may win Christ. It clicks for Paul. He realized he was dead. He thought he was doing well spiritually. But at some point, he was overwhelmed with his failure. Sin came alive, and he died. Had the law been perfectly obeyed in every way, he would have been given life. But he didn't perfectly obey it, especially internally. And all his spiritual accomplishments were nothing. We can relate to that, can't we? Many of us have religious resume, maybe not as a maybe not as impressive as what Paul gives to the church at Philippi, but many of us have had years of church attendance, service in the church, moralistic living. We've gone through the motions of religiosity. Lancaster County is filled with people who have lived by a rule book of some sort. It's possible for some to be alive apart from the law. 
Verse 11 explains that sin deceived him and killed him. What he had previously leaned on as the basis of eternal life was actually the basis of his deserved death. A person can be deceived into thinking that they are acceptable to, be, to God because of their own good works. Are you a, alive apart from the law? Or do you see that you are a lawbreaker? Friend, nothing less than a perfect record, externally and internally, uh, nothing less than a perfect record with God's law is good enough. No mere human can keep the law of God. Do you see that? Or have you been deceived? This text invites you to recognize your failure, to see Christ's success, and to call on him as your Savior. If you've never done that, I extend to you from the Word of God, God's invitation to you to call upon the name of the Lord and to be saved. God's law is not the problem. It's our sinful hearts that are the problem. And God's law is not the solution to our problems, but God's Son is. God's law has a revealing element to it. God's law has a provoking element to it. God's law has a deceptive element to it. And finally, in this passage, we see that God's law has a holy element to it as well. The conclusion of the matter is this. I got all the window trim pieces off. I got the windows installed. Any burn marks on the trim or broken pieces of trim or any other imperfections from the job were not the fault of the, of the multi-tool. The tool is fine. The tool is good. The tool performed as it was intended to perform. The tool was never the problem. I was the problem. The operator was the problem. God's law is not the problem. Our sinful hearts are the problem. We know this because in verse number 12, Paul says, Wherefore, here it is, the law is holy. The commandment is holy and just and good. When the law was originally given, it was holy because it came from a holy God. Back in Exodus chapter 20, brothers and sisters, we must keep a clear distinction in our minds between the righteousness of the law and the sinfulness of our response to the law. So Paul, his summary is that the law is not problematic. Sin is problematic. A murderer is sentenced to death not because of a law that says do not murder, but because of his or her own action of committing murder. The law is good. It is just. That's why preaching the law is a necessary part of preaching the gospel. When you go evangelize this week, and I hope you go evangelize and tell someone about Jesus and make disciples this week, when you evangelize, the law is not to be absent. Explaining law-breaking establishes the need of a law keeper. And there is only good news because first there is bad news. All of us have broken the law of God. In its Old Testament form, the law is holy. So Paul says, is the law sin? By no means. The law was not provided to us to show us how good we could be. The law was given to us to show us how good we could not be. We're bad people. The law establishes God's 
holy standard. It reveals to us that it is impossible for us to achieve that standard of righteousness. Augustine said it this way, God commands what we cannot do, God commands what we cannot do, that we may know what we ought to seek from Him. God commands what we know we cannot do in order that we might know what we should seek from God. Because we have failed miserably to keep His law, we are seeking God's intervention. We are seeking His mercy. We are seeking salvation from the punishment that we justifiably deserve. We sang that this morning. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. That is why the law is holy and righteous and good. It points us to the reality that our only hope is found in the mercy of God through His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Just as we may be surprised at the varied elements of a multi-tool, the law of God has varied elements to it as well. It reveals to us our sin. It provokes us to sin. It deceives us. And yet, it is good and righteous and holy. The ultimate purpose of the law is to reveal my sin and cause me to accept a Savior. The only true lawkeeper is Jesus. That's who the law points me to. The law reveals my sin. Jesus can forgive me of all of my sin. The law provokes me to assert my will against, against God. And Jesus' perfectly submission, submission to God reveals his, his perfection. The law deceives me into thinking that I am good because I may keep parts of it at times. Jesus is good because he kept all of it. Do you see it? Over and over and over, the law points us to Jesus. God's word points us to Jesus. So the call from, for, for us to, from this passage this morning is that we continue to look to Jesus as our substitute, that we rest in Jesus' fulfillment of the law, that we trust in Jesus' perfect law-keeping in our place, in place of our own failure. And now we get to remember. Now we get to think back to the cross. We get to remember what we have woefully messed up on in keeping the law. The law didn't mess up. But even though we have all those reminders of our sin, there is a glorious hope that is found at the cross. And this is what we do when we come to the table. We remember what Jesus has done for us at the cross. So I'm going to ask the men who are serving the elements, if you'll come take your place. 